Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It is an honor to be back in the Word of God with you. In our next two studies, we're going to finish up the teaching of Daniel 7. But let me just give you a bit of a warning. No matter what church you are in, in the lower 48 or here in Alaska, and no matter who is teaching, if the Word of God is being taught line upon line and verse upon verse, about one-third of the people love it, about one-third are lukewarm, and about one-third cannot wait until it's done. As we move forward in Daniel, we're heading into some deeper teaching in the Word of God. This is not seven steps to happiness or three steps to peace in your life. This is not the fluff that dominates the pulpits of most churches today. And so do yourself a favor, purposely engage in the text. Seek to learn it for yourself. And if you do, I promise you that the reward that God will give you is a much deeper understanding of the plan of God for Israel and the nations, which should deepen your faith in him. But before we dig into Daniel 7, let me just tell you that on our website, you will find a chart that compares Daniel chapter 2 with Daniel chapter 7. And you also find something new that we're doing. You will find a study guide for this lesson. They are both located under our resource tab at returntotheword.com. Adele Gabowry was an elderly woman who lived in Worcester, Massachusetts. And a few years back, she went missing. Neighbors got concerned when they had not seen her for a time, and so they notified the police. A brother explained that she had gone into a nursing home, and so the neighbors began to watch over her property. Michael Crowley noticed her mail, which was being delivered through a slot in the door. It was piling up, and when he opened the door, hundreds of pieces of mail came out. He notified the authorities, and the mail was stopped. Adele's next-door neighbor, Eileen Duggan, She started paying her grandson $10 twice a month to mow Adele's lawn. And they noticed later that year in the winter that the pipes had frozen and water was actually flowing out the door. So they called the utility company to shut off the water. But what no one had guessed was that while they had been trying to be good neighbors and help out, Adele Gaburi had been inside her home the entire time. When the police finally investigated the house as a health hazard, They were shocked to find her body. And according to the Washington Post, Adele had actually died of natural causes four years before they found her. As we come to Daniel 7, it would serve us well to remember the principle that things are definitely not always what they seem. This is true in life. This is true when dealing with people. And this is true when it comes to the nations of this world. The respectable external appearances can mask and hide the reality of what is truly taking place underneath the surface. The culture we live in is spiritually dead. This is a truth that the church needs to wrestle with. I mean, let's be honest. Mankind is achieving some incredible scientific breakthroughs. Our knowledge of the world and of creation is exploding. But all of this is simply masking the underlying reality that every kingdom, every nation apart from God is ultimately falling short. In this day in which we live, mankind appears to be more advanced, more alive, more on top of our game than ever before. But spiritual death reigns. The nations are crumbling from within because all that exists is lost man's attempt to rule the world apart from God. Daniel saw this. 
and the revelation that was given to him. Let's go ahead and take a look at our text. Let's get a good overview before we break down these verses. Daniel 7, starting again with verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words, which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. The chart I mentioned before compares chapter 2 and chapter 7, and right now we can use it to catch up where we left off in our last study of Daniel. The first eight verses of chapter 7 showed us that Daniel had a dream that depicted four empires that would rule over Israel. These four empires were compared to four different beasts, and they also coincide perfectly with the four nations seen in chapter 2, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Then in verse 9, we saw that the Ancient of Days, God the Father, was on his throne, and the Antichrist was about to be judged. But take another look at verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Verse 11 is teaching us that in this vision, Daniel glanced. He looked over at the fourth beast. The reason he watched was because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. Keep in mind that the horn is the Antichrist. And the way the text is worded here gives us the idea that Daniel watched his fourth beast because the pompous words got his attention. It's kind of like if you don't watch a lot of TV and then you hear the garbage that the rest of the world is listening to. It shocks you. It grabs your attention. Same thing here, except much worse. Daniel was a man that lived for the Lord. And look back at verses 9 and 10. The scene taking place in the vision is in heaven. Daniel had just seen the Ancient of Days seated. He saw God's throne. He saw angels ministering to God. And then all of a sudden, Daniel hears these terrible words being said about the Lord. He looks. And now the scene has shifted from heaven to earth because the fourth beast is on the earth. The second part of verse 11 tells us that Daniel saw the fourth beast slain, meaning the fourth empire in its final form will be destroyed. This is the revived Roman Empire. This is in the future. Since the little horn, the Antichrist, is a part of the fourth empire, this means the end of his rule. Revelation 19.20, jot that down. Revelation 19.20 teaches this is when the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire when Christ returns at his second coming and overthrows the armies gathered against him. This is the stone of chapter 2, crushing the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The Antichrist is going to be dragged, kicking and screaming before God, still spewing out his lies. 
until God himself intervenes and stops his mouth, taking his physical life and casting him to the flames of judgment. It is sad that this is what it takes, not just for the Antichrist, but for the prideful men of this world. Verse 12 is remarkable. Read it again with me. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Recognize the contrast here between verse 11 and verse 12. In verse 12, we learn that the rest of the beasts, Babylon, Medo, Persia, and Greece, these three beasts or empires, Daniel tells us they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Ask yourself the question as you read the text. Ask yourself what Daniel meant by this. Basically, he is contrasting the fourth beast in verse 11 with the other three in verse 12. The fourth beast will be destroyed. But the other three, they were conquered by their successors. Babylon was the first nation during the time of the Gentiles to rule over Israel. They were conquered by the Medes and the Persians, who in turn were conquered by Alexander the Great of Greece. Think back to our study of chapter 2. We did mention that when Alexander the Great died, his four generals each took a piece of the Greek empire, which in turn was conquered by Rome. The first three empires were never totally destroyed. Conquered, yes, but not totally wiped clean from the face of the earth. As Daniel puts it in verse 12, their dominions were taken away. Many people living at that time did not die. They lived on in the continuing empires. Their towns stayed the same. Their culture stayed the same. That's why Daniel writes, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Literally, that phrase, a season and a time, could also read a season and a set time, or an appointed period of time, as the New American Standard reads. Those nations came to an end, but the people within them lived on for a set time. Their cultures lived on. The details of these prophecies should be encouraging to you. They should not only be helping you to understand what God is doing, but the specific details put forth by God ahead of time gives us confidence and hope for the future. It is Christ himself that will destroy the final form of this fourth kingdom at a second coming. In Luke 24, Jesus said in verse 27 that Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then just a few verses later, Jesus said, At that time the Son of Man will come in a cloud with power and great glory. The times of the Gentiles, the time when Israel is dominated by the Gentile nations, it all started way back with Babylon and extends all the way to the second coming of Christ. Listen, the first three beasts had been taken over by the military power of another nation. But not this final beast. It will be taken over by the divine judgment of God. And this is why Revelation 11.15 teaches that the day is coming when it will be proclaimed in heaven. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The Apostle John recorded the announcement from heaven that the nations of this world, the earthly kingdoms, have become Christ's kingdom and that he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 19, it details this for us. The Antichrist, the false prophet, and the kings of the earth will gather to do battle with the Lamb of God. The world will resist Christ till the bitter end. Jesus will conquer the armies of the nations with the simple spoken word. And the Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Notice how this fits in with verse 13 in Daniel. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Follow the flow of thought. Verse 10 took place in heaven. Verses 11 and 12 explained what would take place on earth. The Ancient of Days we have identified before as God the Father. Most of us would assume the Son of Man is Jesus Christ. The Jews, even before the earthly ministry of Jesus, correctly understood this to be the coming Messiah. The early church understood this is the Messiah. But notice the careful wording, one like the Son of Man, not just a man. He is the perfect representation of man. The Savior used this expression repeatedly in the gospel records to refer to himself. One example of many, Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Christ taught and referred to himself as the Son of Man. And as I said before, Christ did this time and time again. So now let me ask a question. Why did Christ do this? Why did Christ refer to himself as the Son of Man? Well, the idea is present that Christ came in weakness with humility, taking on human form. In the New Testament, Christ used this phrase to identify himself as one of us. We've talked at length of the deity of Christ, fully God. But let us not overlook the fact that he was also a man, and so he used this expression to identify himself with mankind. But I think there's another reason that Christ did this. Not only did Christ use the phrase Son of Man when he came the first time, but when he spoke about his second coming, he used that phrase again, the Son of Man. Matthew chapters 24 and 25 are filled with examples of this. Listen to what Christ said in Matthew 25 verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Christ used this title to refer to his second coming. Or again, Christ spoke of his second coming in Matthew 24, 30. Listen to that text. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Think of the wording the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the Word of God is extremely consistent all throughout about the Son of Man referring to Christ. Now there's actually one other reason that we know it is Christ. In Daniel 7 verse 13, we see that it says the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven should clue us in that the Son of Man is Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, And in several places in the New Testament, we see the mentioning of clouds when God is present. The fact that the Son of Man in verse 13 will come with the clouds of heaven, it emphasizes his deity. Listen to Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Again, Christ coming in judgment. As you read verse 13, you might be tempted to ask yourself, why will Jesus, God the Son, be brought before God the Father? Well, I'm glad you asked. The answer is given to us in verse 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. God the Father, or the Ancient of Days, giving to God the Son dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Another word for glory is honor, so honor is given to Christ. Dominion, power, authority. The teaching here is that Christ will be in control. 
Christ will have the authority, the rule, the glory, and honor that belongs to him. Now, don't confuse a couple of different teachings in the Word of God. Christ is fully God. Christ is sovereign. Christ is the creator. And right now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But that is not what this text is about. Don't miss the teaching. Right now, the Gentile nations of the world are allowed to dominate. The rulers of this world have been allowed to rule over Israel. The rulers of this world have been allowed to have authority. But the day is coming when all the authority to rule and reign will be taken away from these nations, and it will belong to God the Son. He will usher in his kingdom in order that, notice the purpose in the second line of verse 14, in order that all people's nations and languages should serve him. When Christ ushers in his kingdom, he will be the source of all political power on earth. Make your way over to Psalm 2. This is a messianic psalm. I mentioned Psalm 2 briefly when we were in Isaiah, but I want you to read this text with me in light of what we're studying in Daniel. Read this with the understanding that the fulfillment of this is when Christ returns, not at the rapture, but at the end of the tribulation, the second coming. Pick it up with verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Notice the prophecy here of Christ. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This messianic psalm points to the futility of men, the foolishness of men rejecting Christ now, and the absolute futility of the nations when they gather to do battle with Christ when he returns. As you make your way back to Daniel 7, recognize the teaching of Psalm 2. The promise of the Father to the Son of an eternal kingdom, it will be fulfilled. You hear a lot of talk today from those that hold to reform theology that the kingdom is now, that you and I are living in the kingdom now. To be honest, that just lacks all credibility. Listen to Psalm 110, another messianic prophecy of this coming time. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. And notice the teaching of verse 14 back in Daniel. All the people's nations and languages will serve him. Focus on the second half of the verse. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Do you see a contrast in verse 14? Christ's kingdom shall not be destroyed. The nations of Daniel 7, the first three, their control was taken away from them. The fourth will be destroyed by Christ, but Christ's kingdom will not pass away. Christ's kingdom won't be destroyed. Some of the greatest men of human history ruled over these earthly empires, but these nations and their leaders departed from God. And when it was the Lord's time, 
he removed their authority. And their kingdoms were taken from them, but not so with the kingdom of God. The Son of Man shall receive from God the Father an eternal kingdom. Be careful with the teaching here. The millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, it's not a separate kingdom. Christ will rule for 1,000 years. And then, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Christ will actually deliver the kingdom to the Father. And once Christ puts down the rebellion of Satan at that time, the Lord Jesus will once again take up his kingdom for all eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. What a glorious day that will be. Notice our next two verses. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. In the book of Daniel, we have seen on a few different occasions that Daniel was given the interpretation by God. Here on his own, he wasn't able to fully understand the interpretation. But I don't think for a minute that he was completely oblivious. Here is why. God had used him back in chapter 2 to explain Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and the meaning was much the same. Remember the words of chapter 1 that Daniel had been given by God understanding in dreams and visions. But Daniel appears to be a guy who wanted specifics, details, and next week we'll see in verses 19 and 20 the parts that Daniel really wanted to focus on. Just like Nebuchadnezzar before him, Daniel was troubled. Look at the wording. I was grieved in my spirit within my body. What he was trying to communicate was that his entire person, his entire being was troubled or distressed. The visions really disturbed him. And I think the evidence throughout this book, especially chapter 9, is that Daniel was wondering how these things would affect his people. And the future revealed to him in this chapter meant some tough times ahead for Israel. Verse 16 tells us that he approached someone. We don't know for sure who this was, but it was probably the angel Gabriel. Because both in chapter 8 and in chapter 9, Gabriel is with Daniel. So it stands to reason that this might have been the one explaining things to him. Our last two verses give us the first part of the interpretation. Let's read them again, starting in verse 17. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, verse 17 is pretty straightforward. Daniel was told that the four great beasts represent four kings that would arise out of the earth. Keep in mind that in the word of God, kings are often spoken of as representing an empire. It's very common for kings and kingdoms to be used interchangeably. But also notice that according to Daniel, these kingdoms would arise out of the earth, meaning these would be actual kingdoms, actual nations that would rise up. At this point in history, Nebuchadnezzar was already dead and Babylon was in her final days. Christ is the king, but his saints will receive his kingdom with him. Daniel was being told that he could look to the promise that one day the faithful remnant of Israel will receive the kingdom. Even though the nation of Israel has been set aside and the church is now center stage, God's plan for Israel, God's covenant, his promise of a kingdom, means that just as these other nations existed as literal physical kingdoms on earth, one day so will the kingdom of God. Many years ago, a farmer owned land along the Atlantic coast. He constantly advertised for hired help, but most people did not want to work farms along the Atlantic 
The storms that came in from the ocean were hard on the buildings and on the crops. But finally, a middle-aged man approached a farmer and applied for the job. The farmer asked him about his experience, and the man replied, I can sleep when the wind blows. It's a strange answer, but the farmer was desperate for help, so he hired him, and he worked hard around the farm. This man was busy from dawn to dusk, but one night, the wind came in from offshore, and worried about his farm, the farmer grabbed a lantern, rushed next door to the building where the hired hand was sleeping, and he shook the man and yelled for him to get up to tie things down because a storm was coming in. The man half awake told the farmer, No, sir, I already told you I can sleep when the wind blows. The farmer was enraged by this, but he headed outside to prepare for the storm. And he discovered that the hay had been covered, the cows were in the barn, the chickens were in the coops, the doors were fastened tight, everything was tied down, nothing could blow away. And it was then that he finally understood what his helper had meant when he said that he could sleep when the wind blows. The principle left to us from this simple illustration is that when you are prepared, you have nothing to fear. God left behind an instruction manual for us to help us prepare for the day of his return and to help us prepare for the coming of his kingdom. You see, one of the things that I talk about with my family is intentional living living with a sense of purpose, living like the child of God that he intends us to be. Salvation is by faith. Sanctification is by faith, meaning we grow by trust in his word and by trusting in who he is. And the very reason we should want to grow, the reason we should want to mature is because of his grace. But do not miss the principle for a second that for the redeemed, there are rewards to be gained and there are rewards to be lost. Make your way to Luke 19. And as we look at this, do not confuse this parable with Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking they are the same, but they are not. Luke 19 always grabs my attention because the text gives us an interesting little detail at the outset. Set up for yourself the understanding of what was taking place. Jesus was headed to the cross. This is shortly before his death. The disciples were with him and notice verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem, meaning the cross was coming, and look at the rest, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. The disciples were looking for the kingdom. Pick it up with verse 12. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them, ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Who are the citizens? The Jews who rejected the kingdom of God. They rejected their king. Verse 15. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. The thing to remember in this passage is that there are two different groups of people, his servants with different levels of faithfulness and the unbelievers who rejected him. Notice the servants and how they responded starting in verse 16. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful and very little. Have authority over 10 cities. 
And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. A mina was about four months' worth of wages in that day. And the first two servants were shining examples of the type of life you want to have as a believer in Christ. They weren't given anything extra. They each started with one mina, but it is what they did with it that mattered. It is what you do with your time, your abilities, and your resources down here that matters. Notice the third servant. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Meaning, why didn't you at least do something? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to a master, he has ten minas, for I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. There is nothing in this text to suggest the third man was an unbeliever. He is identified as a servant. He makes it into the kingdom of God. Wicked here just means his actions were wicked. And even though he was redeemed, he had a poor understanding of God and God's expectations of us in life. He lived in disobedience to his master. And so he lost his rewards in the coming kingdom of God. There is an eternal kingdom coming, and it is a misconception that exists in the Western church that every believer in Christ will automatically reign with Christ. All the saints, all the believers from all the ages will one day partake in the kingdom with Christ forevermore. But reigning with Christ will be a reward in the kingdom of God. The unbelievers in this parable are found in our last verse. Verse 27 describes those who reject Christ. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Head to one more text, 1 Corinthians 3. For the sake of time, we're going to skip down to verse 11. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Notice this, same teaching as Luke 19 the servants, the redeemed. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I take great comfort from knowing that in the very next chapter, in verse 5, when the Lord returns, he will judge according to the counsels of the heart. The Son of Man will rule through his saints. People will have a share in the Son of Man's everlasting kingdom once it is established on earth. Believers will occupy the kingdom. For some, this involves reigning with Christ. Revelation 2.26 teaches those that keep the works of Christ until the end, only to those will he give power over the nations. 
And so the question that stands before us, if you believe the teaching of the Word of God, if you have an eye towards your future and the work of the Master here on earth, one question remains. How prepared are you for standing before Christ? What have you done with the minas in your life? Have you invested in the work of the Master? What have you done with the time, the resources, and the spiritual gifts the Lord has given you to accomplish His work? Paul instructed the church at Rome that the day is coming when every believer in Christ must give an account of himself to God. And Paul told the church at Ephesus to redeem the time because the days are evil. Faithfulness will be rewarded with greater opportunity to serve the Lord in the kingdom. Let this motivate you to serve Christ all the more. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.